Sir Alpern, the team of Brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. Mike Newman, uh, of course, is a prospect analyst at Fangraphs, is the proprietor of rotoscouting.com, rotoscouting.com, and is also the guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio. And additionally, uh, finally, is also probably on the road uh, as I record the introduction uh, to our conversation together uh, because he's going to Chattanooga today, Chattanooga, Tennessee, to see a Southern League game, a double-A Southern League game between the Chattanooga Lookouts, the double-A affiliate of the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers there, and also the Huntsville Stars. I believe they're called the Huntsville Stars double-A Southern League affiliate of the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, we begin this episode talking about that, talking about why Newman has decided to go to that game as opposed to any other. It involves uh, right-hander Zach Lee, right-handed Dodgers prospect Zach Lee, and also Yaziel Puig, Cuban defector, now member of the Dodgers organization, Yaziel Puig. We discuss him. We also discuss some younger players who've made their debuts. Uh, they've made their major league debuts in 2013 and have something like uh, you know, something like a full-time role now uh, with their respective teams. So, for example, Jackie Bradley Jr., uh, that's a name you'll hear invoked, and maybe Jed Jerko is another name you'll hear invoked, um, a couple other guys along those same lines. What I'm presenting here, though, is, uh, is definitely an overview uh, of what follows. There's, uh, uh, there's a lot to enjoy. There's a lot to enjoy. Not from me, but from Mike, uh, from the parts where he's talking, there's a lot to enjoy uh, in this edition of the podcast. Uh, it is, uh, it is in fact, Fangraphs Audio. That's what it is. Uh, it features prospect analyst Mike Newman, and it begins right now. I tried to play racquetball this morning with somebody like 20 years my senior and oh, got absolutely whooped. 20 years your senior? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I played with somebody I'm doing some some non-baseball related stuff with, and uh, yeah, he he is 52 and yeah. just throttled me at racquetball. <laughs> so it's something I need to get better at. Okay, let's uh, so let's talk about uh, you. You mentioned your day briefly. Let's uh, talk about that first, and then uh, I have in mind to get to some debuts, players who might debut, etc. We'll see where it goes. But um, let's talk about your schedule today and what you're excited about today. Well, I'm headed up to Chattanooga for uh, Zach Lee and Yasiel Puig. Uh, my first look at him after all the Bo Jackson comparisons and crazy talk going on right now. I guess. That's well deserved, considering his what 500 batting average this spring. Sure. Let, let's slow it down, though. Can you uh, talk to me about uh, Chattanooga? What level that is? What organization, etc. Sure. Uh, Chattanooga is the Double A affiliate of the Los Angeles Dodgers. Okay. And tonight, the Huntsville Stars are in town, which is the Double A affiliate of the Milwaukee Brewers. Okay. And so, um, so Zach Lee is a, a, I believe, is a was he a pitcher or third baseman in that system? Zach Lee is a pitcher in that system. He was also a prized football player. So the Dodgers signed him on one of those, you know, five-year spread bonus deals. And I think he wound up getting about $6 million. So the Dodgers have quite a bit riding on his right arm. And then, you know, everybody knows at this point that Puig is the uh, Latin guy they signed for six years, and even more money, enough money to make Zach Lee's $6 million look like peanuts. Mm-hmm. Now, um, yeah, and if I remember correctly, I, I forget what year, maybe it was the 2010 draft, maybe 2011, when the Dodgers took Lee, 
I, I think it was looked at because this was still in the Frank McCourt era. And mm-hmm. wasn't it looked at as though they were drafting a guy who would be necessarily hard to sign so that they could – so that when he didn't sign, they could sort of throw their hands up and say, oh, well, he was tough. But then they actually that's did sign a, him. Yeah, that's exactly what it looked like. Um, you know, the Dodgers drafted Lee, and they also drafted Kevin Gossman, who, you know, we know wound up being drafted by the Orioles in the first round. So they have drafted some very hard – uh, picks to sign, and everybody pretty much thought the Dodgers were uh, drafting Lee to not sign him and get the pick the following year and, and save a bit of money in the short term. But they wound up surprising everybody and pulled the trigger on him. And the interesting thing for me about Lee is, you know, last year I had a chance to see him a few times, but he had gone up to Double A. He was struggling, and I thought to myself, you know what, he's going to be here all of next year. So I didn't find there was that much of a rush to go see him pitch so um you know i chose to go see Ivaldi, who was close to the big leagues or you know alan webster who was close to getting moved up a level uh, you know I, want, I thought it was more important to see those guys again than to see lee our first time thinking i'd see him multiple times this year and it was interesting because he was a guy that was had huge helium as a guy that was an, an ace or a number two or one of the better pitching prospects in baseball. And then kind of last summer, last fall, I guess Jason Parks uh, of Baseball Perspectives got a look at him and said, hey, he's probably no more than a number four, which for $6 million you hope to get more than a number four. So I'm really curious about what I see tonight and what kind of Zach Lee I see, if it's uh, one of those high-ceiling guys that everybody becomes enamored with or if it's a right arm that I've kind of seen before for a lot less money. Yeah, um, I mean, what the most recent reports you've heard about Lee? What do you, I guess, what do you expect, or what did those tell you? Well, you know, he fell from a guy who was top fifteen, top twenty in all of baseball into the sixties, or maybe a little bit lower. So um, the balloon has popped a little bit. I am probably expecting something in between. To be honest, I, I don't think I'm going to be up there seeing an elite pitching prospect tonight, but, um, you know, maybe we're looking at, it it sounds so cliche, but uh, maybe I'm going to see a a mid-rotation guy, a chance to be a number two on a second division team or something like that. It's hard to speculate because when you go to a park, you wind up seeing different things than other people see. Um, Plus, with it being so early in April, I don't exactly expect to see Zach Lee's best stuff. Uh, I, if if it's, if the velocity isn't big and and um, you know he's going to be a guy that takes multiple looks and maybe he grows on somebody over time and the command gets better and the lo- and his ability to locate gets better and and the overall view of him as a prospect um, grows. Uh, that that's I, I'd say that's probably what I'm expecting. Okay, yeah. Um, so is it so is it both a question of velocity and command? Is that uh, is that what the concerns have been with regard to to Lee, or is it one or the other? Or? No, I think more of the of the concern about him has been the velocity, okay. and that he is more of a command control guy. That you know, uh, Joe Blanton's a, a guy like that mm-hmm. who is good and durable and should pitch a long time, but just doesn't wow anybody. Mm-hmm. And you can find that for a lot less than the money they pay him. 
Right. Yeah. I always think of when you describe a guy like that, especially a younger prospect sort, I always think Jordan Lyles. I mean, I don't I don't know if, if that's a good comp or not, but Lyles is Lyles is interesting, right? Because uh he hit his ceiling so quickly. And uh I mean at this point I guess he's even starting the year at triple uh, A. But uh you know, he's he's performed decently in the majors. It's just it doesn't seem like there's anywhere else for him to go, even though he's quite young. Yeah, Lyles kind of has that same thing. But then again, you know, you're looking at Lyles, who I think was a second-round pick, who received a heck of a lot less money. And when so many millions are involved and, you know, him, I think Lee had a a scholarship to LSU to go play quarterback. You know, it's he's a much more uh, higher-profile guy than Jordan Lyles ever was. So, you know, there's a lot more riding on this pick, actually, Working, but you know, one thing that I can say is that it could be six of one, half a dozen of the other. You know, the the Dodgers traded a number of their pitching prospects, so they traded De La Rosa, they traded Alan Webster, you know, they traded some guys, and they traded Ethan Martin, um, Josh Lindblom. Uh, the list goes on, but they kept Zach Lee. So one thing is either they liked Lee more than the other guys or the other teams just didn't like Lee all that much. So right. I, that's another storyline that I'm really interested in. Okay. And then with Puig, uh, now he's he was made available, certainly clips of his were made available during spring, uh, during which, I mean, even beyond the batting average, which, of course, uh, in a small sample is going to be wild, is going to fluctuate wildly, uh, there, there appeared to be stuff going on beyond it. I mean, he hit two, three home runs. Uh, I think he was playing, if I'm not mistaken, a a credible outfield. He's he's a um, from what I saw, he's got a kind of a physical build, and he's not that old yet. But he's also got some speed. I mean, sort of like, uh, I mean, physically. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. If, I don't know if he can hold down center, but like you know, like that sort of Mike Trout or Marlon build, or yeah. Mar- Marlon Bird type of build, where he's bigger but has speed too. Well, I've heard a couple of names. I've heard Cespedes. That, mm-hmm. that is going to be like that, which could happen. And then the crazy cop that I've heard flying around is, oh, this guy's like Bo Jackson, and, and that guy was a once-in-a-lifetime athlete. So I'm, I'm pretty much discrediting that right off the bat. But, you know, you look at a guy like him, and a buddy of mine was at the Chattanooga Lookouts Media Day and stood next to Puig and could not believe that he was only 22 or 23 years old. He said the guy was a monster. And, you know... If a guy with that size can have speed and power and be an explosive type prospect, that becomes really special. I mean, I haven't seen that many guys that combine those attributes. I'd say Bryce Harper did it pretty well. Uh, Mike Stanton did it pretty well. And um, Hayward wasn't as much explosive, you know, muscular type, but – He's also a, a speed, power, profile guy, but you don't see guys with, you know, potentially 60 tools on both the speed and power side very often. You know, there may be only a handful in all of minor league baseball at any one time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Puig, I, I saw you mention uh, via Twitter that you were going to uh, make sure to hit his his uh, his BP session. Um, I, you know, we've sort of talked about this before, but I'm curious, maybe with in particular with Puig, what you'll be looking for there? Well, the first thing is that I had a momentary lapse because I was so tired, and uh, the prospects will hit first. So Puig will hit first. Uh, 
mm-hmm. um, tonight. The the Dodgers guys will. So that means I would have to be in the car now to catch his BP today. Oh, okay. Uh, but I will catch his BP uh, another time. Uh, and what I'm looking for from him is is a couple things. First, you don't want to you you want to see the BP swing that's relaxed and fluid. You really want to see that carry over into game action. And then, you know, it's a great opportunity to take a close look at a player's mechanics that's not in a game situation. So, you know, the guy's not – you're not judging mechanics off a low and outside slaughter that the guy chases at. You know, you're, you're looking at him repeating his swing mechanics over and over again and trying to identify things. Also, you know, I just like hearing the way the bat comes off, the, the ball comes off a of bat. Uh, I like to see bat whip through the strike zone. You know, there are a lot of things that I look for in terms of a hitter that separates themselves in batting practice from just the average guy. And is there anyone else that you're going to be able to see in this game uh, that, that's uh, of some interest to you, or, or is it you sort of have focusing on these two guys? Well, there are two other guys. Um, the first is Huntsville pitcher, uh, Jimmy Nelson. Mm-hmm. I saw him last year through a side session, and to be honest, he reminded me a lot of J.J. Hoover when I saw him pitch in the South Atlantic League. And, you know, it's not that J.J. Hoover is that great, but in a on a team that doesn't have Chapman as its closer, uh, Hoover might be getting looks at the closer job right now. And if you hadn't noticed, the Brewers' closer job seems to be a bit of a revolving door. So you wonder if at some point maybe if Nelson can exert himself into that situation. Uh, But you also have a Brewers rotation that's, you know, they just signed Los because some of their young guys didn't perform as expected. So maybe he becomes a back-end starter for them. Uh, I've spoken to scouts that really like his stuff and think if he can improve the command a little bit that there's definitely a big leaguer there. Uh, the other guy would be outfielder uh, Jack Peterson with the Dodgers organization. Uh, he's young. He's only 20, maybe 21. But he had a huge year in the California League before just making a, uh, a token appearance in the Southern League playoffs. So I've seen Peterson once and was thought he was a pretty good prospect, but he's a guy that I want to see quite a bit this year because if he can't stick in center field then that's really going to hurt his profile okay yeah well that sounds exciting now what what, what sort of guy is he is he uh is he a sort of a toolsy sort i see here um uh that he he managed to hit quite a few home runs and stole some bases although the home runs uh of course we we say well california league and then the stolen bases uh he mm-hmm. stole 26 of them but he was 26 of 40 uh which is not yep. something that you're going to be able to carry over to the major leagues yeah, and, that, and that's kind of what um, what's uh, going on with him is that, you know, I'm looking at, you know, you, you see the numbers and then you watch him play, and he's almost built a little bit like a David Murphy, you know, a guy that has some utility doing a lot of things pretty well, but maybe doesn't excel at any one thing. So those guys are not particularly easy scouts. So you really want to go out and see – him over a number of games, you know, see how he handles route running in center field, see if there's, you know, I don't think he's as fast as 26 stolen bases would indicate or as powerful as the home run totals would either. So, um, 
you know, I'm thinking it's he's more of a tweener in the end. But and again, like I said, David Murphy's the perfect example of a guy everybody thought was was going to be a tweener, who has become an awfully valuable big leaguer. Yeah, hey, that's interesting. I, I think that David Murphy uh, represents an interesting case study, right? So far as prospect analysis goes, because a player with his description, he could, you know, uh, you look back five years ago, um, and I think you know at one point the uh, the Red, let's see the Red Sox traded him. He was, he was a bust first rounder five right, years ago. Right. Yeah. At one point, the Red Sox said highly of him. Maybe he was out of uh, one of those Houston schools. Uh, Rice mm-hmm. was he out of Rice? Does that sound right? I'm not 100 percent sure to yeah. be honest with you. Uh, I can uh, Google that illicitly while we're talking. But um, he was there, and and he was considered uh, to be pretty important uh, to the future of the organization. But he didn't really. I think the idea was, well, he's not really a center fielder, right? And we don't think he's necessarily going to hit for the corners, or at least he's not going to have the power for for a traditional corner role. And mm-hmm. uh, and then he kind of became a lost man. Um, yep. Yeah, he went to Baylor. I apologize. He went to Baylor and Waco. But he you was got a, Texas right. Right, I got Texas right. And uh, he was uh, traded um, for – oh, gosh. He was traded – this happened a while ago. He was traded uh, with Engel Beltre and Kaysen Gabbard uh, to mm-hmm. the Rangers for Eric Gagne. Yeah, and at that point, Beltre would have been by far the marquee prospect in the deal. Okay, all right, yeah. So, uh, but he's become something, and it sort of happens slowly, right? Yep. Uh, where he's, but he's always, uh, and I think he was probably utilized in a platoon role quite a bit. But he, he was there. He was sort of this strange guy because he was kind of their fourth outfielder, but because mm-hmm. Hamilton was spending a lot of time on the DL and Nelson Cruz was spending a lot of time on the DL. He got quite he got quite a few plate appearances. So he actually hasn't had fewer than 400 plate appearances since 2007 in the major leagues. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of an interesting arc, and I'm, I'm curious. Is, it, it, now, you're going to see guys, you know, like you said, Jock Peterson. Is there any way where you're like, where you're like, oh, yeah, this could be – I mean, you mentioned David Murphy as a comp, but it seems like that David Murphy's path is so – sort of unique and slow, uh, that's sort of a strange uh, comparison there. Well, there are a couple things. Uh, One of the great things about advanced statistics is that it is really shine a light on guys who can run, guys who can play solid defense, and has unearthed players like a David Murphy who don't fit the prototypical big slugging left fielder role but become damn good major leaguers nonetheless so you know i think you'll see more of those types of guys coming through i mean to some extent you know alan craig was a late bloomer david freeze is a late bloomer um you know the brett gardner there are a lot of players uh, peter burgess we could go on all day i mean a lot of players that probably wouldn't have been given the time of day 15 20 years ago that have become three and four win players and on top of that like multi-multi-millionaires because somebody identified value and said, you know, this guy really doesn't have to play center field. If he's a tweener but he hits enough, we can get away with him at in left field because, you know what, we have one of the best offensive second basemen in the game. Mm-hmm. You know, when it's about runs overall and not so much runs and what specific position they come from, it gives you the opportunity to pull together a roster of guys like David Murphy, knowing that maybe some of, you know, those runs are going to be made up somewhere else, and top to bottom you have a better team. 
Um, one thing I want to look at uh, um, before we get done here is uh, is some are we play- done already? No, 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 no. My point is, I want to make sure we hit this. Is uh, is some players who've um, made their major league debuts this year and you know appear to be either in starting roles or something like starting roles. And uh, I mean, uh, I have five guys in mind, just guys who've already made their debuts and are uh, appear to have something like an important role with their team. Um, and then, uh, and then we can maybe look for players who who you know might be fulfilling a similar role, not very far down the line. But I I don't know h- right. how in depth we should get. You know, maybe it's going to be a case by case basis. Um, sure. But uh, so we'll start with one. He plays in a large market, and um, he's already you know quite popular among the fans and sports writers. That's Jackie Bradley Jr. Uh, mm-hmm. Originally out of South Carolina, or University of South Carolina, now uh, occupying. Something not unlike an everyday role as the Red Sox left fielder, um, which is, you know, which would, is surprising considering, uh, you know, where he was. Well, certainly where he was in his last year of South Carolina, which I think was less than impressive. Um, yeah, an, an injury-plagued uh, year, which, mm-hmm. you know, we have to remember that at one point Jackie Bradley was considered a surefire first-rounder and probably top 15 prospect in the draft. Mm-hmm. And then injuries kind of derailed that. So, you know, he's he's a he's a bit of a, a sleeper who's not exactly a sleeper, if that makes sense. Yeah, this is an interesting thing that happens, and, and maybe this is what we learned from the the case of Jackie Bradley, or one one lesson we learned from the case of Jackie Bradley. Uh, I know that this ha- a similar thing happened. They're not necessarily uh, comparable players, but uh, Victor Roach, who. Um, mm-hmm. who the Brewers drafted this year. They took him somewhere in the 20s in the most recent draft. Mm-hmm. Um, but his name had at least been invoked in conversations of top 10 or top 15 of the first round. Yep. And then he gets injured, and then his draft stock falls, except you say, you say, well, is this injury something that's going to affect him, you know, for the uh, – you know the the six plus years we have control over him as a guy in our system, or is this going to be an injury that lasts, you know, three to six months and then he returns to himself again? Yeah, I mean that's always going to come down to medicals and and investigating players. I mean, you look at Rendon, and he certainly wasn't. What did he go sixth overall? You mean uh, of course, the, just just to, for the sake of everyone, Anthony Rendon, Anthony Rendon, yeah, yeah. in the Nationals organization, the, the Nationals, Anthony Rendon, who's one of the you know, best prospects in baseball when healthy. You know, he dropped lower than he would have, and he was expected to go number one and wound up dropping because of, you know, injury red flags. And it happens quite a bit. And, you know, if, if, if Victor Roche's injury was something that, that could affect future power, like let's say a knee or maybe his right knee since he's a right-handed hitter, and his ability to, you know, turn his back leg and thrust forward to hammer baseballs, then he may slip a bit. Um, as a major leaguer, you know, Mike Napoli with his problems. I mean, look at how his contract slipped. You look at injuries of, of active players, of prospects, and you go, boy, how does this injury change the player over time? Which, and that's going to cause guys to slip. And in some cases, it's going to cause guys to maintain. I mean, I'd say Lucas Giolito, the Nationals prospect, maintains his draft status pretty well, considering everybody knew this guy was going to need Tommy John surgery. 
And uh, in essence, the Nationals pretty much punted the entire rest of their draft to sign him. And that's just because uh, – does that have something to do with the fact that uh, I think that organizations are pretty comfortable with Tommy John surgery now, a player's ability to recover from it, and knowing that you can get a top-flight pitcher um, is is more important than – or is, is uh, far outweighs the, the possible risks of Tommy John surgery uh, in in the short term. Yeah, I'd say in most cases. You know, there are a few guys that struggle to come back from Tommy John surgery, but in general those top guys come back and – resume their role as top guys again and especially in the case of the nationals where you have strasburg who had it you have zimmerman who had it and they're both functioning at an extremely high level mm-hmm. you know you're going to look at tommy john entirely different than maybe a team where a guy didn't come back i mean in general something like michael pineda with the yankees and his shoulder is much more worrisome than a tommy john would ever be you know and and that's been an amazing development uh, and that, what, 30, 30 years ago that these kind of injuries ended careers. Right. And now they're just, hey, he needs his 14, 16 months, and he'll be back good as new. Right, right. Uh, let's see. Um, moving on, let's let's look at uh, Jed Jerko. Did we, ever actually, did we ever actually talk about Jackie Bradley we'll himself? Say, well, I don't know. I mean, we, used him, we used him as an entry point to what I consider to be a compelling point or conversation. But you, what do you need to say about Jackie Bradley? You got something to say? Well, no, just, just the fact that that whole situation has been awfully interesting. I mean, the Red Sox are in kind of a predicament right now in that they do have Jacoby Ellsbury in center field. And I, I guess the Ben Chinton had said, you know, that they're going to put their top 20, their best 25 on the baseball field, and Jackie Bradley was one of those guys. And I find it really interesting because they, they did sign some free agents. They did make some moves to try and rebound and be competitive this year. So, kind of fascinating that Bradley up and getting an extended look now, because if the Red Sox fall out of contention, they trade Jacoby Ellsbury. Mm -hmm. But if they stay in contention and Jackie Bradley takes Boston on by storm, then they can still trade Jacoby Ellsbury. (laughs) So it's a pretty good position for them to be in, just as an, an organization, to roll the dice on him right now. It's almost like the perfect scenario unfolded for him to to get a shot because I honestly didn't think it was going to happen so soon. And your sense of, of Bradley is that he would be average or plus in center field? Uh, I mean, I certainly think he's a plus left fielder. Uh, uh, everything that, having not seen a whole lot of Bradley, I mean, everything, everybody that I've spoke to has pointed to him being at least an above average, if not a plus center fielder. I like him as, as one of those all-around talents who hit some, maybe has some gap power, steals some bases, lays good defense. I mean, the guys come together and become four-win players. I don't know if he's a guy you want to build a franchise around, but he could quietly be an extremely productive player at the major league level. My only concern is that the hype machine has started churning just so fast on him that I just don't know what he would need to do to not wind up disappointing. Right, 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 right. Yeah, and I, and that could be a problem. It seems like it, it, it's something that happens more frequently within the, the larger and more involved media markets, right? Uh, I mean, anytime certainly a, a, a New York prospect comes around, whether it's, you know, for the Yankees or uh, or the Mets, that, that's also a worry. Uh, I mean, certainly that was something that uh, made the Fernando Martinez 
situation uh, more difficult than it needed to be um, uh, when he was around there. Um, but yeah, that seems that seems like it's the case. I mean, what do, what do you think? What do you think he needs to do in order for people to say, yeah, that was a that was a good that was a good debut season, uh, you know, and, and and it's not a disappointment. Well, I mean, if you look up what I mean, Carl, uh, Carl Crawford did as a rookie, and I know the Red Sox don't want to have anything to do with Carl Crawford ever again. Mm-hmm. But he was a heck of a player for Tampa Bay. But I don't think he was particularly good his rookie season. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I just think people have to temper their expectations with him. I mean, Bradley's probably not going to be a 300, 375 player I- immediately. You know, he may wind up being a 260, 270 hitter with a decent on-base percentage. But if you're looking at those, you know, triple crown categories, you may not be too excited. But when it all comes together and you're adding defense and speed and all those other other things, you know, I would just – stress to people that they need to look at the all-around player here mm-hmm. because he's going to be adding value that just don't come up easily in this bat uh, that aren't as easy to find in the stat line. He uh no he probably more so than a than a young Carl Crawford is is a bit better at controlling the plate, the strike zone, right? No, which is not to say that he's better than that same Crawford all around, mm-hmm. but he he has a little bit more idea what's going on in the strike zone. I would yeah, I I'd agree. But then I also say that's probably offset by he's not quite as fast, right? And probably not as explosive in terms of power, right? Okay. Can we talk about Jerko now? Yeah, we could talk about Jerko as having like the best name on earth. Yeah, I mean it's certainly an amusing name. Um, he he, uh, I guess was this a case because he's playing second base now, um, mm-hmm. mostly mostly for uh, San Diego. Is this a case where uh, is he really a second baseman or? Did he just sort of force his way into that role because the because the bat was that good? Uh, you know, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, a healthy Chase Headley, uh, Jed Jerko's not uh, displacing him. Mm-hmm. You know, Jed Jerko's not going to be sending Chase Headley back to left field. So you have to find a place for him to play. And what's happened in, in recent years? You've had Dan Ugla move to second base. You've had... Jason Kipnis moved to second base, although he became a, a pretty good second baseman when a lot of people didn't think he would be. Teams are starting to hide good offensive producers at second base because the position isn't super hard to play. So when you're thinking about Jed Jerko and where you're going to put him, you know he's probably not a good enough athlete for left field. He's probably not big enough to play first base because one of the other things about advanced statistics is now teams have realized, hey, we want good defensive first basemen because those guys will pick more balls and make the rest of my defense better. So uh, there's really, when you think about where's Jed Jericho going to play, second base becomes a really almost natural decision given his offensive skill set. And the fact that, you know, he did play shortstop in, some shortstop in college. He did play some second base in college. So if he is a plus producer offensively at second base, yet is a tick up below average at second base, he can still be a quality contributor and make up for any of those defensive deficiencies with the bat. Right. Yeah. I guess that, yeah, uh, those are all interesting points. He, uh, I, 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 um, I guess we have a situation with Chase Headley too, right? He's injured right now, but we, mm-hmm. we assume that it will be uh, it will be Jerko 
playing second base in a full-time capacity when Headley returns from what does he have a fractured left fractured left thumb he has yes I would assume that Jerko is going to be the second baseman at least um you know I know Dave Lorla spoke with Jerko when he was out in Arizona mm-hmm. and from what um Lorla has relayed Jed Jerko was basically told you know day one of the off season by their general manager Josh Burns that look we want you coming back as a second baseman next year. Mm-hmm. So it seems pretty solid in their mind that Jerko is going to be a second baseman. And if he's not, then he's just a big jerk and not a Jerko. <laughs> that was really not funny. I, know. I figured I'd throw that in. I wanted to throw that in for you because I knew what your reaction would be. The, uh, all right. Jerko nailed down. Uh, no more Jerko. Uh, Aaron Hicks. Aaron Hicks. For some time, a uh, top prospect in the Twins organization. Yes, already then, getting dumped on by everybody because he struck out a bunch versus Justin Verlander. Okay, right. right. Then, like everybody doesn't strike out a bunch versus him. And then uh, he went on – he just uh, – it seemed like he was not necessarily developing, although maybe it was – his stat line was not getting any better, but he was still moving through the system. Uh, mm-hmm. Had a pretty good season last year at Double A. Had an excellent season. Yeah. Some, some would call it a breakthrough season. Yeah, you could uh, – there are people out there – what they would do is they'd go ahead and call Aaron Hicks, 2012, uh, AA New Britain, I think it is, Yep. in the Eastern League, uh, call that a breakthrough season. And then, uh, mm-hmm. of course, has begun the season uh, as a Minnesota Twin, um, a team which had some room in the outfield because, um, I guess kind of mysteriously, they got rid of both Ben Revere and Denard Spam. Um, and uh, and well, anyway... You know, it's, not, it's not exactly, I mean, it's not totally mysterious. I mean, their their general manager kind of said that they has said. I, I think it was in another Laurel interview at uh, Fangraphs that they had changed some of their pitching philosophy to where everybody thought that they were the one signing the real safe college right-hander throwing 88 to 90 miles an hour, mm-hmm. and a lot of those picks didn't work particularly well, um, and they may have received a bit of a, a bad rap for that, but that in the recent years they've been acquiring harder throwers, guys that, with, who can light up radar guns. So when you look at it from that perspective, you know, maybe trading both Span and Revere was a little bit surprising, but their return of, like, Trevor May and Alex Meyer, I mean, they – I don't love those guys' arms, but I will concede that they are definitely big arms. Yeah, sure. Looking. Well, that's the thing, though. You still need, you know, in any, in any case – I mean, it's not to say that Alex Meyer and Trevor May – Alex Meyer, the guy they acquired from the Nationals for uh, Denard Span, Trevor May, one of the players they acquired from uh, from the Phillies for Ben Revere. Yeah, it's not to say that, the, that those guys in and of themselves, but within the context of that trade, uh, they're just they're question marks. Could they could work out? They could work out excellently, of course. But yep. uh, you know, maybe maybe focus maybe look at those guys in terms of your draft. You know, your when you're changing your draft philosophy. But going, but stating it as like you know, by way of like announcing that you're going to get hard throwers and then giving away two talented and you know uh, relatively affordable outfielders. Yep. Perhaps not the right path to take. Yeah, it might not have been. Uh, you know, I was a little bit surprised that they would push Hicks so hard and give him the center field job. You know, but I think with him it's a wait and see. One thing about Hicks is that he was relatively young for every level he played at. And he was always an above league average producer. 
So while everybody was saying, oh, this guy's underperforming, this guy's underperforming, he, ha- he was consistently having pretty good seasons, and then he had a couple that were good before posting his best all-around season, at least in the power department last year. Um, I think the thing with Hicks is, if I'm correct, he hasn't faced a lefty yet, and he is much better against left-handed pitching than right-handers at this point. So some of the struggles that he's had, I know he struck out six times in his first ten plate appearances or something like that, but some of those struggles might be one, facing Justin Verlander opening day, and two, a steady diet of right-handed pitching mm-hmm. where the first time he faces a couple lefties back-to-back, you may see a much different Aaron Hicks. But mm-hmm. he's another guy, still toolsy, still has growth to do at the major league level. You know, you kind of wonder if, if maybe he's he, – well, Austin Jackson kind of produced quickly before having a tough second season. But you kind of wonder if Aaron Hicks's rookie season will be kind of like – Jackson's second season where it doesn't go particularly well, but then there's growth from there. Mm-hmm. Um, now, here's a question. Do you, are you aware of any research um, or at least any anecdotal evidence that would point to switch hitters, which Aaron Hicks is, uh, developing offensively at a different rate than, than guys who, who bat either just from the left or right side? Um, you know, I'm not. Uh, about the only thing that I can say for that is that, you know, uh, I've seen you know, Lindor hit from both sides. I've seen Billy Hamilton and Roman Quinn and a number of players considered to be pro- uh, quality prospects. And especially at a young age, you can really, really tell the difference between the natural side and the side that was uh, either adopted later on or forced on a player. So I would have to know more about Hicks's backstory to learn just how long he's been hitting left-handed for. Uh, in general, I find it a, an interesting philosophy because, you know, especially with the speedsters that they turn around and force to hit left-handed to take advantage of that speed. You know, I, I wonder if the trade-off of having an extra step, step and a half of the batter's box, is worth you know hundreds of plate appearances from a lesser side of the plate. Right. I've always kind of questioned the utility of that overall and, and maybe something that just makes sense on paper but as as the at bats and time um goes on if that's maybe not the best thing well of course i mean if you can have you know there are obviously more right-handed throwers than our left-handed throwers and if you can uh create a platoon advantage all the time mm-hmm. uh you know, especially if you're a natural right-handed batter, but maybe left-handed batting will work out for you. Obviously, there's an argument for that. Um, but you're right. I guess as an organization, the idea is to monitor a player's development in that regard and say, we think that this does not justify uh, the, the switch because we think that ultimately this guy batting left-handed, but maybe, perhaps it's uh, less natural for him, is ultimately going to be a net loss relative to him batting from his, his strong side, um, even if it's against same-handed pitchers. Mm-hmm. Um, listen, I can only go mm-hmm because yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, it's because it's crack analysis is what you were looking at there. The um, let's see, two pitchers, and then uh, what? How much time you got? You got a couple minutes? I've got as much time as you need me for. No, you don't. You got to get to you got to get to Chattanooga. I know that. Nah, I, we can do this until like five forty-five. Okay, let's look at two. We can do a three and a half hour podcast. I think people would love that. <laughs> two pitchers. Uh, one of them's made his debut. 
uh, already, and then uh, one of them it's to come, I guess. I don't know when it's happening um, because I'm not uh, I'm not a wizard, but um, and I also didn't prepare. The, the, they're Brandon Maurer, Brandon Maurer, Brandon Maurer mm-hmm. for uh, Seattle and uh, Miami's Jose Fernandez. You choose who, who you want to do first. You know, we could talk about Maurer a bit, but. I have to say up front that I haven't really seen Maurer pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing for me is that he started off the season behind three teammates on Jackson who were all, you know, first-round picks or very high rank, highly-ranked prospects, you know, wound up passing them all in spring and seizing that job and, and also bumping uh, Erasmus Ramirez, who's been a, a fan love interest for the last six months or so. So, and of course, uh, the hopped, three listen it, quite a few guys to get there. Yeah. So, in the interest of of making it clear to our listeners, the the three guys you're talking about, I believe, are uh, Taiwan Walker, Taiwan Walker, Taiwan. Yeah, Taiwan Walker. Taiwan Walker. Okay. Um, um, uh, Paxton, James Paxton, James Paxton. Yes, Paxton, S- son of American film actor Bill Paxton, notably. Uh, yeah, just go with it. And then thirdly, uh, Danny Holson, who came out of University of Virginia, I believe. Yes, who's a personal favorite of mine. Personal favorite of yours, right? So we saw. So those three guys, uh, they've been um, prized prospects in the Mariners organization for what two, three years now. Well, Holson, since he arrived in yeah 2011, and then I think Walker was a 2010 pick, if I'm correct. Yeah, that's right. And then and then Paxton is, was, has been around about as long as as Walker. So yeah, you're getting on two, maybe three years for those guys now. But right in the meantime, however. Uh, <laughs> Um, two other starters, you mentioned Erasmo Ramirez, uh, and now now Maurer have had or Maurer have had um, have surpassed them um, in terms of at least getting to the major leagues. Mm-hmm. And uh, which I guess is what is this a, is this a story? Does this teach us something about pitching prospects and how much to trust them? Well, you know, I don't know if it teaches as much about pitching prospects as it does what it takes to truly. Um, develop your your absolute best you know pitching prospects to to some extent and i have no idea if this is the case with mauer or ramirez but neither of them were really considered to be these you know top flight guys in terms of stuff so you're looking at that and you're thinking well these are pitchers with higher floors these are pitchers who are much safer plays even though Holson, to me, is a, an extremely safe pitcher. So that if it comes down to pushing a Maurer or pushing a Ramirez over one of the prizes in the organization, that teams may choose to promote those guys uh, because of the safety involved in promoting them. You know, your downside risk is going to be a lot less than blowing up a guy you signed for $6 million or a guy who's one of the top five prospects in the game. So whenever these things happen, I kind of wonder uh, if it's you know if it's just because the guy's awesome, or if it's an organizational decision made because uh, a player is simply good enough that they'll be fine regardless, mm-hmm. and we really can't break them. Kind of like what happened last year with Pasternicki and Andrelton Simmons. Um, Pastor Nicky was a guy that the Braves couldn't break. He was a utility guy, regardless of whether they started him in shortstop that year, sent him down to the minors. His utility was limited. 
where Angelton Simmons needed time because he was truly the future of the of the organization at that position. Um, yeah, yeah, and I guess that's right. And, and that's sort of uh, so. The, so the Mariners are sort of waiting till uh, till Paxton and uh, Holton and, and Walker have a, a sort of polish to, um, I guess, to complement uh, probably the advantage they have over either Ramirez and Maurer in terms of raw stuff. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I think Holson would have their own st- uh, raw stuff. I think if you put him in a big league rotation tomorrow, I think he'd be just fine. Uh, however, they did give him an awful lot of money. So do you want to take that risk of him going up there and collapsing after what happened in AAA? Okay. And, you know, Walker's back in AA. He's going to have some time to repeat that level, work on some of the changes in his arsenal, and, and um, hopefully improve from there. And then Paxton, who I saw in Arizona, I'm, I'm kind of so-so on him right now. Uh, I, I think maybe people were overinflating his value and his stuff, and if maybe he doesn't wind up as a uh, bullpen piece when all said and done. Okay. And then, uh, so so the, the the last guy I wanted to hit and make sure we we touched on is uh, Jose Fernandez, who, you know, I mean, this is uh, it's a it, it's always going to be a curious situation because it's the Marlins. Yeah. Who, who spent the offseason? Um, well, they they got an early start on the offseason by trading some of their players away. Just some. Uh, at last year's deadline, and then uh, I, I like how you use the word some. Well, some right. They trade some of their players. <laughs> yeah, only their be- some. Their best only, play- only some. Uh, the best play. Well, you need you need their requirements is to fielding a roster, so you have to have twenty five guys. Uh, but the uh, right, they got rid of some of their best players at last year's trade deadline. Uh, they got rid of some of, some of their other best players uh, during the uh, during the off season, and now they have uh, Giancarlo Stanton. They right, so they have Giancarlo and twenty four other guys. And twenty four who twenty four guys that we can't name them. I uh, know we we can name them, and uh, they're all better at baseball than you than you and me. Uh, but they probably uh, oh, they might not be that much better than you. I've signs, seen your swing before. Signs point to the fact that they might. Uh, not be a great major league team uh, as as currently constructed. Um, so, uh, so 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 it's curious then that teams uh, that that um, the team would feel comfortable or would find any value in employing or deploying, I guess you should say, uh, Jose Fernandez as a, as a uh, starter with their team to in April, right, where you start his service clock, et cetera. Uh, I talked about this with Cameron a little bit the other day with regard to Fernandez. And um, with regard uh, um, to a larger issue, which is the evolution of free agency, about which Dave Cameron has some smart things to say. And, you know, one consideration is if you're going to be signing your best prospects, if you're going to be locking them up to long-term deals while they're in their, you know, second or third or maybe even their first year of major league service, then it doesn't necessarily matter when you start their service clock because you're looking, you know, way far down the road. So if you think that Jose Fernandez is going to be a great pitcher – then you might as well just start him now, start playing him now, and uh, if he turns out, you know, within a year or two to be the sort of pitcher you thought he was going to be, then you're going to be signing him to a long-term deal anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that's their uh, that's their thought on the matter. Uh, it's not typical though that you'll see a team do this where you know they're going to be bad and you're you're throwing a 19 or 20 year old up uh, against major league competition who hasn't maybe pitched even um, at the Double A level. Um, no, or, or, he did not. Okay, right. So, so that's curious, and I, I guess I'm I'm um, I'm also interested in your thoughts on the matter. Well, you know, I don't know if you knew this, but I lived in Miami for about ten years, mm-hmm. 
and I lived there during both of their World Series runs. Oh yes, and, well, I know that you. Yes, you have a personal relationship with the situation. I know that. <laughs> well, you know, there are a couple things going on. I mean, when I when I lived down there, and I was, um, you know, I interned at a TV station when I was finish, finishing up my major and played baseball down there, and knew uh, a lot of families, especially Cuban and Cuban American families. And every baseball conversation, they were super in tune to what was going on in baseball. Uh, as far as it went with Alex Fernandez and Levon Hernandez, there was this, you know, this sense of nationalism around those guys. Like, you'd have any conversation in 1997 came back to Alex Fernandez. And when you got to the World Series, they were dead because Alex Fernandez was hurt and he wasn't going to pitch in the World Series. Mm-hmm. He was this cult hero icon down there. And... Jose Fernandez has such a marvelous story, and he is going to connect with that community like maybe no player ever has, and that's a great thing. Um, So in terms of the Marlins, with the PR issues that they've been having, having Jose Fernandez ride in on his white horse and, you know, save the franchise is like movie material. Mm-hmm. He's a good pitcher, fourteen and one, one point seven five. I mean, that's an easy sell to the average baseball fan that lives in Miami. Uh, being that they have a new stadium smack dab in the middle of Little Havana, where the Orange Bowl used to be, uh, being that they've moved further south into Miami, that connection with the Cuban population and the Cuban American population is going to be huge for the Miami Marlins to rebuild their fan base. When you look at everything involved as far as financial and and talent-wise, and, you know, this doesn't seem like a bad decision. Just there has to be an understanding that the Marlins are not the Yankees and the Marlins are not the Mets or the Dodgers or any other team for that matter in that, you know, um, that city in some cases in respect to their baseball lives in a bubble. And a guy like Jose Fernandez, it will be the pulse of, of baseball in that city. And it probably won't be Giancarlo Stanton, even though he's a superstar. Um, they will, I mean, if he does, if Jose Fernandez does well, it's going to give a glimmer of hope to that franchise where there's not much right now. And, and at the end of the day, that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, and that's a good point. I had not, uh, I'll confess to not having uh, considered that point, um, but that's why uh, that's why we have Mike Newman uh, on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, or and the other ones too that, on which you appear. Yes, I, I I appear what once every two months now. Hey, easy. You keep cutting me back, and I mess with you every single time. Easy, Newman. This is a, I mean, this is an important production. So Absolutely. Even, even getting that's why that's why time. I want to be on more often. Yeah. I know. Well, you, uh, you and Mark Hewitt, of course, uh, could be dueling or it could be complimentary uh, prospect analysts at Fangraphs Audio. I, I didn't see you guys uh, engaging in any sort of uh, fisticuffs when we were in, in Phoenix, but I, I have no idea why this people keep saying that. But maybe it's, uh, you know, maybe that's what's called for. If, if you guys want to have. Uh, one or the other of you have a monopoly on on the uh, the prospect role, as so far as the podcast is concerned. If anything, yeah. if anything, it would be J.D. Sussman because he's in law school. 
That's true. He'd be able to he'd be able to figure out a way to legally get it away from us. Yeah. Hey, you've uh, fulfilled your obligation. All right. Yeah. How's that feel? Well, thank you for having me. Of course. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was a real pleasure for me. I'm sure it was. And if I left right this very moment, I might be able to catch Pugs BP. All right. Hey, listen, uh, Mike Newman, maybe stick around for a second for some adult conversation. But in the meantime, thanks for joining me and us on Fangraphs Audio. Hey, thanks for having me. Anytime. All right. That's prospect analyst uh, Mike Newman. (laughs) And uh, who also, uh, who also, what is your uh, proprietor, baby daddy of uh, rotoscouting.com? Is that right? Rotoscouting? Yeah, rotoscouting.com and uh, the newsletter I just started to try and um, make baseball a living. Right. Turn your millions into billions. Is that about right? Yeah, turn my turn my pennies into gas money. Yeah, there you go. Uh, right. So that is, we'll say that is Mike Newman of, of Fangraphs and uh, also rotoscouting.com. Uh, Carson Stooley has been Fangraphs Audio.